Man, it is good to be here, and we are glad that you are here. Uh, I told Matt after that meal yesterday, and I was, was quite concerned, I told him that we were going to start a petition to take away this congregation's church card. There was no fried chicken. <laughs> But after the meal tonight, I decided to withdraw my petition because there was fried chicken and some delicious homemade banana pudding. So the situation was redeemed. <laughs> Man, I tell you what, the singing here is outstanding. I really enjoyed that. I just sat there and listened, brethren. And I tell you, I heard something that really set it apart. Somebody was singing some good tenor. I don't know who that was. Not going to embarrass them by asking them to raise their hand, but they were hitting all those high notes, and boy, it sounded good. Appreciate the enthusiasm that you sing, uh, with which you sing. It is a compliment to you, and I know pleasing to the Lord. At the very beginning, I'm going to give you a caveat, and that is this lesson is going to be a little different than the ones we had yesterday, and even the one we're going to have. Tomorrow, I told Matt, it's going to be a little more technical, but I think it's a lesson that is critical at this point in our time. And I'm glad we have some young people here sitting down front and some others scattered through the congregation because they need to hear material like this as we all do. Open your Bible to Acts chapter 7. And I'm going to read verses 17 through 23. Our theme for these lessons is lessons from the life of Moses. Now somebody says, how are you going to get to Moses by reading in the book of Acts? Well, let's read Acts chapter 7, verse 17. You'll recognize this as being part of the sermon preached by Stephen. But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. At this time, Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God. And he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all of the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. Now, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. Now, Moses was raised and there was a, there was a play or a movie or something several years ago about the life of Moses entitled the Prince of Egypt. Some of you may remember that. Moses was raised as a prince in Egypt. He was raised as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Being then a member of the aristocracy of the most powerful, best educated country in the world at that time, no doubt Moses was exposed to all of the finest educational opportunities that culture had to offer. Yet when we read the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, particularly Exodus and Leviticus, we actually find none of the wisdom of the Egyptians in those books. 
Many have noted the amazing medical understandings reflected in Moses' writings, such as Dr. S.I. Macmillan's book, excellent book, None of These Diseases. The picture on the screen there is of the cover of the updated edition. It was uh, edited by David E. Stern, who added a good deal of material to it. But what Dr. Macmillan did is took the prohibitions in the Old Testament, particularly in Exodus and Leviticus, that actually, and called attention to those that actually reflect modern understandings of medical expertise and knowledge. These, this, this information that is equivalent to what we understand about medicine today can be Ill, easily illustrated by two examples. The first example is the prohibition of eating unclean animals, such as certain birds, that are raptors and scavengers, and because of their diet, they are prone to carrying diseases. And brethren and beloved, we don't eat them today either. We like chicken. <laughs> we don't like eagle, and we don't like owl, and we don't like buzzard, like we were talking about last night. These birds are unclean, according to the law of Moses, but they're unclean for us today. We don't eat them because they carry disease. Then, then the many scavengers that are prevented to, were prevented to the, to the Israelites and some that we now eat because of the cleanliness in which they're raised. Pork, catfish. Now, I love catfish. I love country ham. But back in the day, cat, catfish is a scavenger. It's a bottom feeder. And unless it's raised properly and treated po properly when it's cooked, it, it, it can be dangerous. But Moses pro, uh, did not allow that to be eaten. This is all in Leviticus chapter 11. In addition to that, the second illustration is de de the instructions Moses gave dealing with leprosy. Now, a note here, the word leprosy actually in the Old Testament includes almost any kind of skin disease from skin cancer to uh, uh, infections in the skin all the way down to what is truly leprosy. And we don't even call it leprosy anymore. But in the book of Leviticus, in chapter 13, there are instructions given by Moses as to how to deal with these matters. If one had a lesion or something in his skin, he was to go to the high priest. The high priest would examine it, and if it was determined to be infectious, the high priest would do what? He would isolate that person for seven days. He would come back to the high priest and it would be examined again. If it still was not clearing up or was getting worse, he would be continually isolated. Eventually, if it got bad enough, he would be put out of the camp. That's exactly what we do today with people who have infectious diseases, isn't it? And so the instructions there literally foresaw or foretold the uh, treatment that we give of people with these kinds of diseases. And incidentally, if after seven days it looked like it was clearing up, what were they told to do? Wash themselves, wash their clothes, and be clean. Now, we know that these, these instructions square with modern medical knowledge. But what about the wisdom of the Egyptians? You have on the screen in front of you a picture of what is known as the Ebers papyrus. 
Brother Kyle Butt, who I've known since he was about 11 years old, is doing a great work. And by the way, young people, if you want to learn more about what we're talking about and the rest of you as well in this lesson, get online and go to apologeticspress.org. Kyle Butt works for that fine organization as well as many other well-qualified with scientific degrees, terminal degrees in various fields, and they write about the things we're going to be talking about tonight. But Kyle Butt, in, a, in an article that appeared in the magazine Reason and Revelation put out by Apologetics Press back in 2006, wrote about this particular ancient document. It was dug up some years ago, and uh, it's been analyzed. And let me share with you some information that Kyle had in this article. Now, just bear with me. I know we don't like to be read too, too much, but I want to read this. It's kind of lengthy, but I want you to, to put this in your mind as we go through the lesson. Kyle writes, among the ancient documents that detail much of the Egyptian medical knowledge, the Ebers papyri ranks as the foremost sources. The papyrus was discovered in 1872 by a German Egyptologist named George Ebers. That's why I got that name. It consists of a host of medical remedies purported to heal, enhance, and prevent. Altogether, 811 prescriptions are set forth in the papyrus, and they take the form of salves, plasters, and poultices, snuffs, inhalations, and gargles, draughts, confections, pills, fumigations, suppositories, and enemata. Uh, we have some of the same stuff today. Among the hundreds of prescriptions, however, disgusting treatments that cause much more harm than good can be found. For instance, under a section entitled, quote, what to do to draw out splinters in the flesh. Now we've all had splinters, right? What I do is I take a needle and dig the thing out and then put some hydrogen peroxide on it or something else that will kill the germs. Here's what an Egyptian would get if he went to a doctor. Let's see, let me pick up my place here. A remedy is prescribed consisting of worm blood, mole, and donkey dung. Doctors S.I. McMillan and David Stern note that the dung is loaded with tetanus spores and a simple splinter often resulted in a gruesome death from lockjar. Remedies to help heal skin diseases, we talked about, Moses would isolate them, would, uh, would uh, include such prescriptions as a hog's tooth, cat's dung, dog's dung, of Samuel, berries of the explant, pound and apply as a poultice. Now, what would you do if you had a lesion on your skin and you went to the doctor and he said, here, I'm going to make a poultice for you and it's made out of cat's dung, dog's dung, and these other things. You'd turn and run as fast as you could. But it goes on. Various other ingredients for the plethora of remedies concocted included dried excrement of a child, hog dung, and a farmer's urine. One recipe to prevent hair growth included lizard dung and the blood from a cow, donkey, pig, dog, and or stag. 
Now he goes on to give credit where credit's due. While it must be noted that some of the Egyptian medicine actually did include prescriptions and remedies that could be helpful, the harmful remedies and ingredients cast a sickening shadow of untrustworthiness over the entire Egyptian endeavor as viewed by the modern reader. Now that's the wisdom of the Egyptians. Why is none of that in the Bible. Why is none of that, particularly the remedies having to do with the diseases of the skin, found in, Moses addresses that. Why is not the wisdom of the Egyptians found in the book of Leviticus? How might one explain that? How can we explain the difference between the Ebers papyrus and the wisdom of the Egyptian and the scriptures? Well, brethren, I can explain it in one word. Inspiration. Inspiration. You see, the Bible claims to be a communication from God. And as such, we would expect it, while it's not a science textbook, and I acknowledge that, everybody else does, you don't pick up the Bible to study nuclear quantum physics. You don't pick up the Bible to study calculus or Euclidean geometry. It's not that kind of a book, but where it addresses those things, being a message from God who created the world, we would expect it to be completely accurate and consistent in every scientific or medical detail found on those pages. And that's a quote from Kyle Butt. And it is, young people, it is. Everywhere you can compare what it teaches about health or medicine or geography or any other thing, you find that it's consistent with reality. Why is that? Because it is a message inspired of God. 3,800 times, 3,800 times, the Bible claims to be a message spoken by God. Thus says the Lord is found 420 times in the scriptures. The Lord spoke is found 138 times. The Lord said is found 234 times. The word of the Lord came to someone 262 times. Somebody says, yeah, but what about these other books that one might find that also claim to be a revelation from God? Here's the difference. When you begin to check them out and as to whether or not they are accurate when they do speak of history, geography, or scientific matters, they fall short. The Bible never does. Let me share with you. Let me share with you. And this is just an aside. It just thought just came to me. But I was in the Bible lands about seven, eight years ago. And we went over to Caesarea by the sea where Paul, the, the port that Paul and Peter both traveled through in, in the journeys that are described for us in the book of Acts. That particular port had been, and all the land around it, the city around it, had been covered by centuries of dirt until the Jewish nation was established in 1948. The modern Jewish nation was established in 1948. And they began to, to dig those areas up, archaeologically excavate them. And they dug down and they found the ancient city of Caesarea. Among the things they found there, and we were able to see and actually walk where the Apostle Paul walked, was the palace 
of Herod. You remember when Paul was in Caesarea for two years, he had a, he had an audience before, before Felix Festus and Agrippa that would have taken place right in that place. But here's the amazing thing. Isaac, our guide, who was a Jew, told us the story. And we saw a cast of the, the uh, I'll call it a rock, big, huge rock, something about as big as that table in front of us. Then later we saw the actual uh, rock in the Israeli Museum in Jerusalem. And there was an inscription found on that rock that really changed a lot of people's understanding of Scripture because you see, for centuries, there was no external verification that there ever was a fellow named Pontius Pilate who was the procurator of Judea. But when they dug up that big stone, you know what it said on that inscription? Pontius Pilate, procurator of Judea. Isaac says, anybody comes around here now and denies that, we'll take that rock, stick it right in their face. Well, that's right. Young people everywhere, the Bible can be validated. The Bible has been proven to be true. Don't let anybody ever shake your faith on that. Do some research on it. And I guarantee you, if you go to college and you go to a state school, including Western Kentucky, I've seen a couple of Western Kentucky. I'm not saying don't go there. I'm just saying go in there with your eyes wide open. I was at Lehman Avenue and we had a number of students that were at Western Kentucky and I was teaching them this same material in one week, uh, one quarter. And I asked them, there were about 25 of them in the class. I said, how many of you have had your faith assailed by a teacher at Western Kentucky? Every single one of them raised their hand. Every single one of them said, somewhere or another in my career, and some of them were freshmen, some of them were seniors, Every single one of them said more than one, at some point, A, and some said more than one, instructor has tried to destroy their faith. So be aware and be prepared. Now, back to the lesson. Consider some specific claims from the Bible that this is a message from God. Open your Bible to Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4, verse 30, down to chapter 5 and verse 1. We are still with Moses and Aaron just right after he sees that burning bush and goes down to Egypt. And in Exodus chapter 4 and verse 30, and Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. And he did the signs in the sight of the people. So the people believed. And what they heard, when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that he had looked on their affliction and they bowed their heads and worshiped. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, thus says the Lord God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Then we turn over to Exodus that's not on the screen there, but let's turn over to Exodus chapter 19 and verse 7. It's about three months out of Egypt now, and they come to Mount Sinai, and the record continues in Exodus chapter 19 and verse 7. So Moses came, came down off the mountain. He made several trips up there, came down and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all these words which the Lord commanded him. Notice chapter nine, uh, 20 and verse 1. 
You'll notice this is the beginning of the giving of the Ten Commandments. And God spoke all these words. And we know later when Moses finally got the Ten Commandments on the tablets of stone, they were lit, written by the very finger of God on those stones. But not just Moses, the prophets also tell us that what they shared with the people of Israel was from God. In Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, verses 8 and 9. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 8 and 9. Isaiah writes this. And I also, I heard the voice of the Lord. This was what Isaiah was called by that beautiful vision that he saw with the cherubim crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. He says, woe is me. I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. God cleanses his lips, touched his mouth with that, with that uh, uh, flaming coal. And he says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then in chapter 8 and verse 1 of the book of Isaiah, Moreover the Lord said to me, Take a large scroll and write on it with a man's pen. Write on it with a man's pen. Here's the pattern. The revelation comes and they write it down. We're going to say more about that in just a moment or two. Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 4. And Ezekiel chapter 1 and verse 3 tell us that both Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and we could look at all of the prophets, tell us that the things that they wrote and the message that they shared with the people of Israel was a message, a revelation from God. But what about the New Testament writers? Paul and the other writers of the New Testament affirm that they were not writing of their own wisdom, but the words that they were sharing were the words, the very words of God. In the first Corinthian epistle, first Corinthians chapter two, beginning with verse six, the 13, reading down through verse 16, Paul writes, these things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ." In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13, we'll get to 1 2 Peter in a minute. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13. I guess you should put all these up there. Paul here affirms likewise that the things he was writing to the Thessalonian brethren came not from his own wisdom, but from God. 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 13. For this reason we also thank God without ceasing. Because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which effectually works in you who believe in. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea and Christ Jesus, for you also suffered the same things from your countrymen. And then 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 and following. 
One of the classic passages having to do with the inspiration of the scriptures. Second Peter chapter one, verses 16 and following. For we did not follow. Check that. First Peter. No, nope, second Peter chapter one. For we did not follow. Yes, that's it. We did not follow cunningly devised fables we may known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. God said that and Peter heard it and wrote it down. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. If you have a footnote by that word interpretation, you'll notice in your margin it says no private origin. It didn't come from man's wisdom for prophecy never came by the will of man but holy men of God spoke as they were moved or carried along by the Holy Spirit. Then let's go back to the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, on that great Pentecost day after following the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, the apostles were gathered together in one accord and the sound of a rushing mighty wind filled Jerusalem and people gathered together to see what in the world was going on. And in Acts 2 and verse 1, when the city day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire and one sat upon each of them and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and catch it, catch it now, and began to speak with other tongues or languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. The Holy Spirit has his imprimatur all over Acts chapter two, telling us this is something that happened because of the action of the Holy Spirit and the word spoken on that day came not from man's wisdom, but from God himself. You remember that Jesus himself promised in John chapter 14 and verse 26 and John chapter 16 and verse 13 that the Holy Spirit would come to the apostles sometime later, bring to their remembrance all things that Jesus had told them and reveal to them all truth that they needed. And those apostles took the message and wrote it down. Now, we've read 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 and 21, but I want to read two more passages. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, the other classic passage, if you will, about the inspiration of the scriptures. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, which says all scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for instruction, for, for doctrine, for reproof, for proof and instruction, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto every good work. Every scripture came by the 
word of God, by the message or by the means of the Holy Spirit given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. And the final passage along this line that I want to read is found in the book of Ephesians. It's a very fascinating passage. Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. The closest thing that I have found in the scriptures to a description as to how this process worked, this process of inspiration. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you. Now, how did this dispensation of the grace of God come to Paul? Catch it here. How that by revelation... He made known to me the mystery. You know, there, there are different ways of learning. The science, the study of how we learn things is called the study, of the, the, the science of epistemology. There are some things we learn by experimentation. I learned a long time ago, you don't touch the stove when mama's cooking. She told me not to do it but I did it anyway. I didn't do it too many times after that. I learned by experimentation that when the sign says wet paint, it's probably wet. There are some things we learn by experimentation. There are some things we learn by observation. That knowledge that when the sign says it's wet paint, it probably is wet, was confirmed when I observed someone else put their hand up on, oh, it is wet. There are some things we learn by instruction and on the list could go, but there are some things that we simply cannot know other than by the revelation of God's mind to us. Paul says this wisdom, this wisdom concerning the mystery was revealed to me. Now, lest we get the wrong idea about this mystery that it's some unknowable mysterious, nebulous thing out there. I like to use this illustration. I don't know if we have any mystery lovers in the audience. I don't care much about reading mysteries. That's your cup of tea. Have at it. I like history. But suppose you're a mystery lover and you go down to Barnes and Noble and you got this favorite mystery writer and you've seen the advertisement for this mystery writer's latest novel and you've been waiting for it to come out and you're there and you happen to see it on the shelf. You pick it up, you read the, the fly leaf and, and you decide, man, this will be great. So you buy the book and you go up to the front, front and get ready to pay and you're standing in the line and this sweet little old lady comes up behind you and she says, oh, I see you've got that new mystery by so-and-so. You will really enjoy that. Well, I really am looking forward to it. Yeah, you'll enjoy that. By the way, the butler did it. <laughs> what are you going to do with that book? You're probably going to walk back, put it back on the shelf. Because a mystery revealed is what? No longer a mystery. There's no mystery about the Gentiles. It's been revealed. Look at what Paul says. 
how that by revelation he may known to me the mystery. Now, what did Paul do with that information revealed to him? As I have briefly written already, Paul took that knowledge gained by revelation and he wrote it down. Now, it's quite fascinating that he also tells us what he expected the Ephesians to do with that revealed mystery which he wrote down. Catch it here. By which when you read, oh me. Now, preacher, you're going to quit preaching gone to meddling. You expect us to read the Bible? Yeah, that's what God expects. He provided for us by revelation. He expects us to read it. Notice the next thing which flies in the face of what a lot of people say. Whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery. Isn't that marvelous? God gave this unknowable information by revelation. Paul wrote it down and he expected them and God expects us to read it and a marvelous thing when we read it, we'll understand it. Somebody says, you know, you can't understand the Bible. I've asked people that, uh, people have said that to me. My temptation is to ask them in response, well, have you read it? A lot of times they've not read it. Now don't misunderstand. There are some difficult things. Even Peter said that there are some difficult things that Paul wrote. There are some concepts in the scriptures that brilliant minds, much more brilliant than mine over the centuries have wrestled with. For example, the nature of the Trinity. How can God be three in one? I don't know. I do know this. We are a triune being. You know, Paul in the Thessalonian letter said that God would preserve us body, soul, and spirit. We're a triune being. Are we perplexed by that? I don't think so. Can I explain it to your satisfaction? Probably not. But I know that is the way it is. How did God create the world by just speaking a word? How did that process work? You know, I don't know, and I really don't need to know. I just know he did it. I just know he did it. And it was revealed to us. So, the Bible claims to be a revelation from God. Is there any other information we can give in defense of that claim beyond what we've already done. The fact that there's no wisdom of the Egyptians in the first five books, beyond the fact that it claims to be a revelation from God. Indeed we can. One is the unity of the scriptures. Back several years ago, I collaborated with some other authors on a book we each wrote a different section of that book, but we decided that we would not indicate before that book was printed who wrote what section of that book. You know, when it came out and I read it, I could not, I could not decide which parts I wrote and somebody else wrote. And the other thing was, there was a bit of disunity in that book. There were different opinions expressed. But one of the amazing things about the scriptures is there is a unity in the scriptures that defies the imagination. 
If two or three people down here at this corner of Fountainhead Road and Highway 109, if somebody's standing there at that shell station and somebody's standing diagonally across the intersection and there's somebody standing on this side, the south side of Fountainhead, and they watch two cars crash in that intersection, do you think that it, that involves one, two, three witnesses and at least two drivers? Do you think all five of those people are going to tell you exactly the same story about what happened? No. <laughs> but in the scriptures... There is a remarkable unity. Paul never sets out to correct something that Peter wrote, nor something that Luke wrote. Matthew does not set out to correct what Mark wrote or what Luke wrote or what John wrote. They are complementary, each one adding something different to the discussion. Human beings cannot even witness an automobile accident and in 10 minutes agree on what happened. We just got back from vacation. We went out west. We're gone 17 days, covered 5,000 miles. One of the places we stopped was in Springfield, Illinois, to view Abraham Lincoln's tomb and his house. We went into the bookstore. You know, you got to exit through the gift shop and all of these things. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> exit through the gift shop. You go to the Dollywood, you exit through the gift shop. You can't get out any other way. But anyway, we had to exit through the gift shop. And we went in there and books. Did you know there are probably more books written about the conspiracy of how Abraham Lincoln was killed than any other thing in history? And nobody agrees. The, the eyewitnesses don't agree. They can't even agree on what uh, uh, John Wilkes Booth yelled when he jumped off onto the stage. There are about five different things that people claim he yelled when he jumped off on the stage. But the Bible has a unity that cannot be explained apart from divine guidance. For example, a unity of theme. The theme of the scriptures from the first page to the last is the creation, the fall, and the deliverance of mankind from that sin. It has a unity of detail. Again, not one writer does not set out to correct. Even in the books of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles and the prophets, many of whom wrote at the same time. One does not correct the others. The Gospels are the same way. Unity of detail. But the book, interestingly enough, consists of the writings of 40 different men over a period of 1,500 years. Men of varying backgrounds, varying cultures, Varying educational and socioeconomic levels. We have fishermen. We have goat herders in the Old Testament. We have shepherds in the Old Testament. We have aristocracy in the Old Testament. Men who were trained among the aristocracy as we already mentioned about Moses. And yet all of these people wrote in a unified, with a unified purpose Brother Keith Mosier in the book Reasons to Believe is quoted by Chad Ramsey, quote, trying to solve this issue of biblical unity without inspiration will prove to be an impossible task. But a second reason we believe, in addition to what we've already discussed, is the accuracy of the scriptures. We've touched on this already. Some things mentioned in the scriptures are not subject to verification. Was there a universal flood? We were not there. We didn't see it. 
Was there a universal flood? To be honest with you, that's not subject to verification. We know that there have been floods in times past that were greater than anything we've ever seen. We know that there, in every, every culture that goes back any time, there is a universal flood story in that culture. But that's not subject to scientific verification. But some things are, and where the Bible speaks of these things, it is, it is from God. If it is from God, we would expect it to be accurate. And it's never been proven to be false. Let me tell, share with you a couple of names here. Many have tried to prove the Bible wrong. Two classic examples of this are a fellow by the name of Sir William Ramsey. He lived back in the 1800s. Sir being he was a, you know, knighted by the queen back in the old country. He was a scientist of some re reputation. He had read the Bible and he decided that Luke was not an accurate historian, nor was he accurate with respect to his titles of rulers and place names. And so he set out at his own expense to prove uh, Luke wrong. He spent about five years in that search. You know what the results of that search was or is? A book entitled Paul, the Roman Traveler and Citizen, in which he shows the results of his search showing that the apostle Paul, that the uh, Luke, the beloved physician, was accurate in every way that could be verified. And he wrote a book about that. There's another fellow by the name of C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was a writer of some renown, wrote the screw tape letters and some other things. Uh, but the book that I enjoyed more than any other was Mere Christianity. You see, C.S. Lewis was a preacher a denominational preacher in England, and he delivered a series of sermons on this very topic over the radio. They were transcribed and put into print, and it's, some, it's, it's written on the popular level. Everybody can read it. It is some of the most powerful philosophical arguments for the accuracy of the scriptures I've ever read. Mere Christianity, powerful book. But you see, before he became a preacher, and wrote those lectures, he was an atheist. What converted him? He set out to prove the Bible wrong. And he proved himself wrong, became a preacher, and wrote a book that's some 60, 70 years old now, but is still being recommended on college campuses all across this country. Along that line, the, the, the uh, existence of the Hittites, we read about the Hittites and the uh, Jebusites and all those kind of ites back in the Old Testament and they're not diseases, they're people and for many centuries people said there was nobody named the Hittites we have no evidence outside of the Bible that the Hittites ever existed well but it was confirmed when the capital city was dug up by archaeologists and found their archives and in that archives, they found several mentions of the Hebrews. Isn't that amazing? And as I've already told you, the Pontius Pilate stone discovered in Caesarea Philippi, or Caesarea by the sea. And so the unity of the scriptures, the accuracy of the scriptures, one more quickly, and that's fulfilled prophecy. Fulfilled prophecy. What are the odds? of someone guessing 
such events as biblical prophecy predicts. Now, I grew up listening to a lady by the name of Jean Dixon, and they all said she was some great, you know, prophet. Her predictions I, went something like somebody's going to win the election. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> but there are prophecies in the Old Testament that are spe specific with respect to events and even names and times. Consider the following quote from a fellow by the name of Wayne Jackson, a gospel preacher. There are 300, he quotes this from another person in his book, Surveying the Evidence. There are 300 fulfilled prophecies about the Christ in the Old Testament. A mathematician named Peter Stoner selected just eight of these and calculated the odds of these being accidentally fulfilled to be one in 10 to the 17th power. Now, for those non-math people, which is probably most of us, that means one with a little 10, 1017 up there. We know what 10 with a two up there means. That means 10 times 10. We know what 10 with a three up there means. It means 10 times 10 times 10. A 10 with a little four up there means 10 times 10 times 10 times 10. A one with a 1,000, a 1017 up there means, uh, what was it, a one multiplied by one itself 1,017 times. He goes on to suggest, suppose we uh, 10 followed by 17 zeros. Suppose we take 1,017 silver dollars and lay them on the face of Texas. You ever been in Texas? That's a big place. 1,017 or 10 to the 1,007th uh, power, 17th power. Take that many silver dollars, lay them on the face of Texas. They will cover all of the state two feet deep. Now mark one of those silver dollars and stir the whole mass thoroughly all over the state. Then blindfold a man and tell him he can travel as far as he wishes, but he must pick up one silver dollar and say that this is the right one. What chance would he have of getting the right one? That's the odds of even one of these prophecies, one of these 300 prophecies being accidentally fulfilled. I said that was one more, two more real quick. The relevance of the scriptures. You know, we, we witnessed, some, witnessed some great tragedies in our recent day. Mass shootings, the bombing of the World Trade Center, the bombing of the Murrow Building in Oklahoma City, shootings at school. And I'm always amazed when that happens, the news media will come and say, at that school there will be counselors to help the students and the faculty. Have you ever wondered who those counselors are? Let me tell you who they are. Our news media doesn't want you to know who they are. They are clergy people. They call for the preachers in the community. Why? Because only the preachers can give hope in that kind of situation. 
they call up the ministerial association and say, can you send some, some of the ministers in the area over to such and such? They don't call, oh, yeah, we need some counselors. Let's call the American Atheist Association, see if they can't send some people over here. Give these folks some hope. And the atheist goes in this auto, oh, worry about it. It's your friend that was blown up. He, he's just dead as a hammer, just dead as a dog. Don't worry about it. He's food for the, for the worms. Just get about your business. That's going to be real helpful, isn't it? Why do they do that? Because of the relevance of the message of the Bible. I have officiated at many, many funerals, more than I care to remember. And when the folks gather, they want to hear a word from God. When somebody's family is falling apart, they want to hear a word from God. They want you to pray. When somebody is sick and in the hospital has been announced here, they want a word from God. Go and read them the scriptures. Read them the 23rd Psalm. Pray with them because they want to hear the message that comes from God because it's eternally relevant to mankind's fallen state. And then finally, it continues to endure. As long as they have been keeping these statistics, and that's a long time, the Bible has been and continues to be far and away the best-selling book known to the humankind. Why? Because people understand it's a message from God and it's relevant to their life. It continues to exist and to endure in spite of efforts to destroy it. And young people don't I'm not going to mince any words here. There are those militant atheists out here that want to take your faith away and they want to destroy your faith in the scriptures. They want to destroy your faith in the church. They want to destroy your faith in God. And they want you to deny it. And they'll do everything within their power to make you do that. Don't let them steal your faith. Mamas and daddies, don't let them steal your faith. They'll steal your children's faith. How do I do that, preacher? You learn the answers to the questions they're going to ask you. And Matt, you preach on it. You preach on it a lot. I don't know if he's taking Christian evidences down at school or not, but he, he better. He's not going to get out if he doesn't. Our conclusion. Our conclusion. The message of the Bible is a message from the eternal God of heaven. And if that be the case, brethren, what we have to do is what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 3. We need to read it, understand it, and do it. Now, I've not spent a lot of time in these lessons, and our time is gone already. I've not spent a lot of time in these lessons telling you the plan of salvation. I know that Matt has done that time and time and time again. And I know you've heard it time and time and time again. You know what to do if you're not a Christian because you've heard the message from God that tells you faith, repentance, confession, and baptism is how you get into the family of God. You know that. And you know that if you have drifted away, the way to come back is through repentance and prayer. You know that because that's in this message 
if that applies to you tonight, what you need to do is respond in an appropriate way right now as we stand together and sing.